0: That's powerheads. <laughs> Definitely, Father. Thank you so much once again for this opportunity to gather together as family, a family that you've ordained since eternity past. A, a family that has the privilege of gathering together in a building that was built by your servants. Father, we're so grateful for your grace and your love and your mercy. Thank You, Father, for days like today, and thank You for feeding us and filling us up with the Word, and not only the Word, but Your Spirit as well. Thank You for sanctifying us, and thank You for Your patience along the way. We pray for those that are still battling illnesses, Father. We pray for those in the congregation especially that would love to be here this morning, but cannot be for physical or emotional or what have you, reasons, your will be done. We pray also for those still struggling with the truth, those that are still lost out there that need the gospel. And We just pray that your will be done, that we might be given the opportunity to evangelize them. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a beautiful morning like this one a reality. We just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, Who Will Separate Us from the Love of Christ, Part 2. I would encourage you, if you didn't get Part 1, I certainly would encourage that. Uh, On Thursday, when it was Part 1 of this, uh, what is now a series, I guess, by definition, the Spirit got us thinking about <clears throat> a topic that is truly encouraging, and I want to grab uh, that same vein of thought again this morning. Um, I don't know about you, but I could use a little encouragement. So, never goes, that ne- never gets old, does it? Yeah. Go to Romans 8:35. Romans 8:35. really enjoying what the Spirit's doing with the congregation. It's been, uh, as I say, uh, encouraging to see um, how he's sort of, I don't want to say softening the blow, but just uh, sort of patting many lessons, difficult lessons, um, that have to be delivered with a certain ferocity, and he's just sort of softening it all and reminding us um, that what Paul wrote here in Romans 8.35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us and so we have this idea this supernatural statement uh, that Paul is writing in the face of all kinds of adversity and we might translate even adversity into mental adversity uh, doubts we have doubts I mean who hasn't had doubts Uh, who doesn't struggle with certain aspects of their faith even uh, each and every day Um, up here on the board we overwhelmingly conquer though that's from that Greek word Hooper Nikao Hooper equals hyper or beyond plus Nikao, which means overcome or conquer. So super conquerors would be one way to say that. Hooper, hyper or beyond, uh, Nikao overcome or conquer to be more than a conqueror as a result of supernatural forces. Where we get hyper or super in the English, that Greek word Hooper is actually where we get the word hyper or even super. The cognates appear in the board. Conquering, therefore, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, from verse 35, is a super, or in brackets, Hooper, hyper, natural act. Nothing less. We'll We'll never win this battle. We'll never sanctify ourselves. We'll never have even one real, true iota of peace. At least not the lasting kind, the kind that truly matters, which is the gift of Christ himself. We won't have any of that if we're to depend on ourselves. And that's what he's saying. It's a supernatural thing that we're able to be hyper conquerors, super conquerors, so to speak. And let's face it, in this world, don't we have to be? I mean, adversity is just crushing. We need his power more than ever. And as he's been stating from the pulpit, perspective is everything. It's not like the Word of God is you know some new flowering thing. It's The Word is the Word is the Word. It's been that way forever. It's what we receive, the Word implanted. And so much of that is not just the, the Word itself, but also the perspective that the Word gives us along the way. And so the answer to the original question, Romans 8.35, who will separate us from the love of Christ, is nothing that's the answer nothing for nothing nor anyone is able to conquer god who's more super or hyper god no one nothing and that's what the language gives us when we read it that way again verse 37 but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us and again that's that greek word hupernikao, which really means to be a super overcomer by supernatural forces, and again, conquering these things, this litany of things that Paul has listed, is a supernatural act, nothing less. And that's very encouraging because it really does take the load off, doesn't it? When you look at all these things that could happen, distress, uh, persecution, tribulation, uh, if you're hungry even, um, it takes the stress off of us to be the ultimate problem solvers we lean on the one who's able to feed us, the one who's able to meet all of our needs. Now, you know how that goes in America. Wants are kind of needs. I need it. No, you don't really need it. You want it really bad, but you don't need it. And we have to keep that and those kinds of things in check. And I suppose the more we keep those things in check, the greater the respect for hyper, Uh, Comes to bear. Paul continues with some additional perspective for the sake of encouragement. Look at verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. In other words, let's just get this all on the table. None of these things will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, I'm going to cover all bases, in case you had any doubts. Nothing. I'm going to cover everything. And that is exceptionally encouraging. So in our previous series titled, How God Enlightens the Eyes of Our Hearts, we received a twofold explanation from Scripture. We might say it this way, read and hear the Word of God. In other words, as Colossians 3 would say, let it richly dwell in us. And number two, be filled with the Spirit which they're analogs, if you remember. Let the Word of God richly dwell in you and be filled with the Spirit. That's how God enlightens the eyes of our hearts. There are far too many malnourished sheep in the flock due to their rejection of these simple truths. You don't have to be a PhD. You don't have to do a doctoral thesis on some, I don't know, arcane theology. You don't have to come up with some new branded doctrine. You just have to follow these simple things. Take in the Word of God, be filled with the Spirit. And let God do the rest. Because as we just noted, it's a supernatural act. You do not have to be brilliant. You do not have to be scientific. You don't have to be any of those things. That's what the world wants you to do. The world always wants to put you back on your heels. And say you're not smart enough. You're not strong enough. You're not this enough. You're not that enough. You are in Christ. And that's the point. So there are far too many malnourished sheep in the flock due to their rejection of these simple truths. There are therefore a lot of sheep who do not possess the peace that they ought to. As we saw on Thursday, there is no such thing as peace outside of the grace of God. Now, that just sounds really snazzy on a Sunday morning, doesn't it? Isn't it just almost sounds like the right thing to say? Doesn't it? You know, I'm getting it. It resonates well. It sounds right. You know, there's no peace outside the grace of God. So you might say, no, duh. But you might be missing the point if that's your response. The point is that while grace is available, most people slight it, and they do so persistently. While grace is available, most people slight it and do so persistently. As the Spirit pointed out this past week, up here on the board, we must be fully dependent on the Word and the Spirit. Those are the two things I just listed that we sort of ferreted out of Scripture in our previous series. We must be fully dependent on the Word and the Spirit. I didn't say that. That's not a Pastor Edism. That's John 4.24. God is Spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In our arrogance, though, we refuse this simple truth, looking for the equivalent of a pharmaceutical pill. We want a quick fix. We want to pop something in our spiritual mouths that's going to fix everything, like right now. Just numb me out. Just numb me. It's, you know, or or you might even have that weird distraught, uh, you know, the fatality thing phenomenon. uh, It's too late for me. It's never too late. I know people have been saved in their 60s, and they have accelerated so fast in the spiritual life, it's stupendous. It's unbelievable the amount of humility and the changes that I've seen in them. It's unbelievable. It's not like God can't fix you. It's not too late. You don't need a pill. That's the wrong attitude. What people need is more faith as a function of humility and grace. Something the disciples of Jesus begged for. And they were really on to something. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. I want more of that. I mean, wouldn't, if Jesus was here right now, if you were able to spend even five minutes with him, wouldn't you want more of what he has? You'd be overwhelmed by his sense of conviction, his faith. So the apostles who spent a great amount of time with him increase our faith. I want what you have, Lord. That's not old. It's not ancient. It's not out of touch. As far as we're concerned, if you want more faith up here in the Board, then simply do as the Word commands. As the Spirit of the uh, the Word convicts you to do, also receive all of God's grace. Receive all of it. For example, if you want more faith, then start praying more. What does the Bible say? Pray without ceasing. That's a command. Do you humbly receive that? If you want more faith, then start praying more. And check yourself to ensure you're asking even, whatever it is you're on your knees and asking for, ensure you're asking with the right motivation. Remember the litmus litmus test for humility, for starters. Go to Philippians 2.3. For starters... If you want more faith, start praying more. And while you're praying, whatever you're asking for, praying about, make sure your motivation is good. Because motivation is key. First, remember the litmus test for humility. So if you're going to go before the throne of grace, God gives grace to who? The humble. So if you're going to go to the throne of grace in prayer, then What's the litmus test for humility? Philippians 2.3 Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's a wonderful litmus test. It's not the end-all, be-all for humility, but it's a wonderful litmus test for humility itself. In other words, if you are not this way, then your humility uh, might be in jeopardy. If you don't pass the litmus test, you might be harboring poor motivation. If you don't pass this litmus test, you might be harboring poor motivation. Go to James 4.3. James four verse three. <clears throat> so you want more faith, you get down on your knees, but your motivation <coughs> is questionable. Again, if you don't pass the litmus test, you might be harboring poor motivation. James 4.3. You ask and do not receive. That's right, that can happen. You ask and do not receive because you ask with what? Wrong motivation. So that you may spend it on your pleasures. In other words, um, that is counter... To what we just read in Philippians 2 3. We're to live for others. We're to esteem others more highly than ourselves. Greater love is known than this, then he laid down his life for others. So you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures, on yourself, in other words. In other words, you have an unholy agenda even on your knees. And God sees the heart. Again, the point on the board is our subject right now. Uh, Luke seventeen five, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And then we had, if we want more faith, then simply do as the word commands, receive all of God's grace. That's what the Spirit's doing right now through this vessel. This is a spiritual gift. And God the Holy Spirit is working through this gift to encourage you to do what? Receive all of His grace. He's even moving in the Bible studies, which I have very little part in, by the way. Maybe, I don't know, to make it more accessible to some of you, to remove a stumbling block or two, to remove a a so-called restriction, just to try to get you in there so that you actually do as He says, receive all of God's grace. Now, to tie this back to our previous lesson series titled How God Enlightens the Eyes of Our Hearts up here on the board, Scripture says in Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You want more faith? Take in the word. Read your Bibles. I just wrote a blog. And don't just read it like I said in the gas example, the gas tank example. Don't read it like, you know, hold books in one day and then expect that to fill your week. If you want to read a whole book in a day, that's cool. But this is not a gas tank. You don't fill up like a camel. And then, you know, run the week on one refill. Take in the Word of God daily. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ, up here on the board. When given faith, we are given the conviction that supernaturally settles our souls. It's our conviction that unsettles those without it. Hence, arrogance is hatred of God-given confidence. Speaking of conviction as a function of faith, go to Hebrews 11.1. 1. Hebrews 11.1. 1. When we receive faith, we are also given the conviction that supernaturally settles our souls. Hebrews 11.1 1 speaks to this. It's just a fundamental truth. If you want conviction in your life, you want more purpose, you want more solidarity, then receive more faith by grace as a humble receiver. Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. The issue is that malnourished Christians don't possess the strength to even have convictions being weakened. Malnourished Christians don't possess the strength to have convictions being weakened. Hence their lives filled with let's call it unnecessary and I use the quotes here unnecessary anxiety, fear, and depression, unnecessary in the sense that they don't, they don't, they don't need to be there. I, um, even though God may use those things for reorientation, hence there is an actual necessity to it from God's perspective, but they don't need to be there. Anxiety, fear, even depression, those things don't need to be there. Some of you, I'm sure, um, and I understand this, and I try to do this as gingerly as possible because I don't walk your walk. Some of you, I'm sure, have a hard time with lessons whenever I even mention a word like depression. Say, "Hey, hey, back off, mister. You don't know what you're talking about. That's between you and the Lord. I'm teaching what is true. It's interesting because... I think society has done, uh, done us a disservice to where words like depression, it's not just the word depression, there's a whole host of words that are taboo. It's almost like nobody can touch them anymore, except pharmaceutical companies. Because the problem is obviously biological, not spiritual. And so it's hands off, Mr. Pastor. We're going we're gonna to deal with this chemically, only. And it's become sort of a taboo. And, and, and what, if you look at society, more and more things are getting sort of roped under that umbrella. They're less the, the result of spiritual issues, and more the result of something that's not your fault. Well, that's a very slippery road. I have no problem introducing the very real possibility, and I'm emphasizing possibility because I don't know. I have no problem, though, introducing the very real possibility that the reason someone, especially a believer, is chronically depressed is a spiritual issue. Do I know for sure? No. But do I know it's a very real possibility? Yeah, based on Holy Scripture? Absolutely. Absolutely I know that. I've been depressed as a believer. I mean who hasn't been depressed? And lo and behold it's because of a spiritual issue. The reason I say this is because my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ promised His sheep peace. There is a mutual exclusivity in other words. He promised them peace. So, if a person's struggling with life, let's broaden the scope of just a little. If a person's struggling with life, they might be missing out on Jesus' perspective on life itself, among other things. And the only way a person is going to be delivered from their situation is if they do as the Bible says. I know, right? It's not like it's an unknown formula. Take in the word of God, be filled with the Spirit. Take in the word of God, be filled with the Spirit. Pray without ceasing. Take in the word of God, be filled with the Spirit. Pray without ceasing. Oh, and by the way, be grateful for everything. All right, Lois is like, amen. Right? Rejoice always. You might be surprised how much just being grateful. That's not, I mean, as much as it's a command, it's also a gift. He's saying, be grateful for everything. Why? Because you'll live a better life. You'll stop complaining about everything. You'll stop being so self-absorbed and depressed. That's why he says things like that. And it's not rocket science, because if you were taking in the Word of God, you'd read 1 Thessalonians 5, (laughs) 16-18. You see how it goes? But interestingly enough, while these things that I teach may not be popular, they are true. Therefore I must teach them. Go to 2 Timothy 4:1. 2 Timothy 4 verse 1. I know they're not always popular. But it doesn't matter. I mean, when when in the where in the word of God does it say we're supposed to abide in social norms? or socially accepted practices, or politically, or political correctness. Where in the Bible does it say... I mean, how politically correct was Jesus? Could there be a less politically correct individual? So they killed him. Second Timothy 4.1 I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, And by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you and this is directly directed at pastors like myself, you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So what I don't ever want to do, by the way, with these kinds of instructions, be ready in season and out of season. I don't have a choice. That's a command on my life, whether I like it or not. Sometimes I'm telling you, it's not fun. It's not fun. Nonetheless, to make my job easier, I never want to sell you the truth. I don't want to sell you anything. I just want to take you to the truth. I don't want to, you know, when I, <laughs> silly, right? I want to say, listen, sheep, you're in the dirt and there's no more water. Let's go over the hill where the grass is so green and delectable, right? And I'm standing on the top of the hill. I got some, you know, some like really grass spray painted, extra green. What? I don't need, I'm, not gonna, I'm not a salesman. I just want you to see the truth, because that's what sets you free. Not some salesmanship. So this is true as an evangelist, as well as a shepherd up here on the board. Never sell the gospel. And of course, our entire lives, our existence, even as believers, is completely wrapped up in the gospel. The more I read the Bible... The more he delivers and sanctifies even me as a human being, as a person, as an individual, the more I realize this. Everything about us is because of the gospel. Our our very existence is an illumination of the gospel. We can never talk a person into believing the gospel of Jesus Christ Give the gospel with your own personality. Be real. This world is full enough of phonies, including false prophets. We read 2 Peter 2 on Thursday up here on the board. Souls are never won through salesmanship. Rather, they are won through the accurate, full presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, there are a lot of salesmen out there standing behind pulpits. Unfortunately. So we need to be very wary of such people, for their goal is nothing less than to make, in many ways, a fortune. In many, many ways, it's about money. Sadly, it sounds so primitive, doesn't it? It's just really about money. A lot of these people are failures outside of the so-called ministry. They're failures. And they've proven themselves failures. And so they go into ministry and they take advantage of well-intentioned Christians who are weak. So we need to be very wary of such people. They uh, They don't care about your souls. Let me put it that way. So they will say whatever it is that your ears want to hear in your arrogance. I mean, let's face it, let's be honest. Think fleshly for a moment. Who doesn't want to hear that God loves them so much that He wants them to be rich? Or that He loves them so much that He doesn't care if they don't really believe in Jesus, just Him, just God. Or that He's so loving that they can live identically to an unbeliever, minus a changed heart. And still go to heaven. I mean, who doesn't want to hear that? Peter wasn't fooled by it, and neither am I. Go to second Peter 2:1. 2, second 2 Peter two verse one. But who doesn't want to hear that, right? That's the whole point. Second 2 Peter 2:1. 2, Never be surprised where these false prophets, these false teachers arise from. Some of you know, I think his name's Richard Dawkins. He's like one of the premier atheists. I guess I just learned that he grew up in a church, like a Christian environment. And now he's like a premier atheist. So don't be surprised where they come from. It's almost like they're more equipped, right? The last time I saw him, he was quoting Catholic doctrine. And shredding it, in his words. And telling large crowds to uh, publicly mock Christians. Interesting. 2 Peter 2.1 But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and the destruction is not asleep. Again, there are too many salesmen in the so-called Christian ranks. We don't need to join them in their charade. Go to 2 Corinthians 2.17. 2 Corinthians 2.17. In other words, the kingdom of darkness doesn't need our help. They already got quite a bit of momentum. We are the last people to err and aid them. 2 Corinthians 2.17 For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. That's the one that always is a kick in the pants to me. I wonder what these people are saying. Don't they know that God is watching them? What are they thinking? When they're standing there, as shysters. I mean, God's watching. It's unbelievable. And here they are peddling the word of God. Kapala u'o means to sell for profit, to make trade of. I mean, the largest church in the, on the planet that I know of is basically a prostitute. That's why their doctrines change every so many years, to accommodate. Because it's more about the money than it is about the truth. Because if they lose the money, they fold. And the guys at the top with the tall hats and all that garbage, they lose their jobs. And you know what? They're no good at anything else except being shysters. If we are truly humble, living for others, then we want nothing more than for them to be saved. Right? Just to be saved. That's When I drive up to this church in the morning, I look at it and I say, there's an institution that is there by the grace of God so that some might be saved. So that you all might be equipped and then go outside of this institution and evangelize so that some might be saved. There's connective tissue. That's what I see when I drive up. It's a pretty church, don't get me wrong. It's lovely made. I mean, Art and the gang and Frank and all them and Betty. And, uh, they did a wonderful job, but that's not what I see. I appreciate it, but that's not what I see. I see an instrument of God to save souls. That's it. That's it. The point the Spirit's making is never sell the gospel. We cannot sell someone the gospel, for that is nothing more than man supposing he can do something God apparently cannot do in their minds. I got to help God out by selling them the gospel. Let's make this place even prettier, if that's possible. No offense. Let's make it even prettier. Let's have some, like, I don't know, lights. You know what I'm saying? Let's just do, I don't know. Because that's, what, that's what's going to bring people to Christ. No, it's not. Let's put a huge 7,000-foot steeple up there. So even 747 going by. Wow, look at that. I think I'm saved. <laughs> I never saw the cross that way. I, oh, my God, I'm saved. That's not how it works. You don't sell it. I mean, that's man, right? In his folly, God needs my help. Could there be a more ridiculous thing? You can't even help yourself. Are you going to help God? So we don't need to sell anything. It's lunacy. We don't need to sell anything. I was thinking about this. I think the appeal of salesmanship to even well-intentioned evangelists like you and I is the idea that there's like a better way. I just haven't found a better way. You know, Uncle Jimmy's going to come around if I find a better way. Maybe that's been the problem. Maybe you're actually frustrating the gospel because you're trying to sell Uncle Jimmy. Uncle Jimmy doesn't need to be sold a thing. He just needs to see the truth. That's it. Give him the truth. There is no really better way. Jesus Christ stated it very simply. I am the way. In the truth and the life, a quote, "better way doesn't exist, especially since God only draws those He so desires. Oh, you're going to draw someone to God with your salesmanship. You're that good. I'm that good. God couldn't save him, but I can.. It's unbelievable. Never sell the gospel. Up here in the book of John 6, 44a, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Therefore, no amount of salesmanship will ever do what God isn't willing to do. There are no shortcuts to conversion. There's no shortcuts. You can't outsell God, so to speak. You're not going to sell the gospel to anyone. This idea of shortcuts came out this past week, only in a much broader sense, so follow with me. I'm broadening the scope of the lesson now. There are no shortcuts. Sanctification relies upon the mixture of the Word, the Spirit, and life itself in order to function. God has deemed that there is no substitute for experience, for even His Son was required to live as a human. Don't ask me to draw this on a piece of paper because I can't. But here's what I do know. The facts are that God sanctifies us over time. That we're on this earth, even if it's brief, for a time. And in that moment, in that time, God sanctifies us. It doesn't happen all at once. Who, who here has the audacity to say they're the same person spiritually they are today or they were uh, a year ago? Not I. It must have been life and the Word and the Spirit and all that stuff sanctifying me. Probably had to wait, had to learn, had to fall down about a bazillion times, make a fool of myself a bazillion and one times. Hey, come on now, DJ. You know? Bazillion and two. <laughs> it's the way it goes, there's no shortcuts. You want to be sanctified? Stay in the saddle. Get bucked off. Go, yeah, I'm an idiot. And get back on. That's, that's what a righteous man does seven times. Falls down, gets up seven times. Don't get up six, get up seven. Get up every time. And God will help you up. God will make you able. So don't doubt it. Sanctification relies on the mixture of the Word, the Spirit, and life itself in order to function. God has deemed that there is no substitute for experience for even his son was required to live as a human. Philippians 2, 7 to 8, Hebrews four fifteen. Go to Philippians 2, 7. If you don't believe me, just in case, I know it's completely possible. Be like the Bereans. Look for yourself. I don't want you to have my convictions. Have your own. Have your own, darn it. Have your own. Philippians 2.7, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Go to Hebrews 4.15. How did he do all that? Hebrews 4.15, I ask Jesus that, hey Jesus, what was that like? Pfft. I might be there for a long time, but that's cool. is a long time, amen. Yeah. Hebrews four fifteen. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, of course. Again, the point on the board: there are no shortcuts. Even Jesus (coughs) lived as a human. I think this point on the board demands quite a bit of our attention and energy. Think about it. There's a reason why God designed life the way He has. There's a reason for it. We may never know all the reasons why He does what He does, However, we have faith that whatever He has chosen to set in motion is perfect in every way. In every way. One very interesting perspective uh, uh, for all of us to ponder, given the no shortcuts principle on the board, is not only did God design life for we humans, I mean, He's the architect, I think we forget that. We forget that we're created, that God created life, that even our human form is the way it is by design. So not only did God design this life for we humans, in particular, He also wrapped His salvation plan around all of it. Not just that, but he actually, this is ridiculous. This is unbelievable. He actually became a man. (laughs) How do you not like chuckle at that? So he designed life. I'm going to create humans. Um, I'm going to wrap my entire salvation plan around it. And then I'm going to become a man and become the center of it. How am I supposed to teach about this? Seriously. I'm either going to ball right now. Or I'm going to just admit that I cannot teach it. Not in its entirety. Because I'll screw it up for you. So you just got to accept it that this is what he did. And it's overwhelming. The single, This single truth is literally impossible for mere humans to fully comprehend. But... Thankfully, he gives us whatever we can handle, I suppose. God became man. <laughs> what? <laughs> and not only that, but the joy that the God man experienced in his incarnation isn't something he desires to keep to himself. He's so loving that he desires to share it with us. Jesus shares his own joy. Jesus wanted his disciples to enjoy the supernatural joy that comes with dependence on him. Jesus wanted to share his joy with those he loved. John 15:10. If you keep my commandments, you will, abide, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This was, in my, le- in my preparation, this is where this sense of family came into play. We've been adopted into a family. You're with me now. We're family. And this is what I want for you. It's already true for you if you're a believer. Whether you realize it or not, whether you're convinced, not, that's not the point. It's already true for you as a believer. I just want you to realize it. I mean, like fully. Because some, I mean, there's some people in here right now, they, that's all they got. This is what they have, this is their family. This is it. I want you to experience God's family and knowing that this isn't just some emotional, you know, thing. That there's sanctification in it. That your anxiety, your fear, your depression even might be mitigated. The more this sinks in. That you're part of an eternal family. Come on, people. I gotta take a moment. How about them socks, huh? Are they even playing? It's season, right? All right, I didn't miss it. I don't know. In your perspective, I just want you to enjoy the spirit of adoption that you received At salvation, go to uh, Romans eight twelve, and I'll try to collect myself. Romans eight twelve. Take your time. Go ahead, take your time. I cannot wait until this battle is over. but God has a plan, right, for all of us. All right. Romans 8:12 So then brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And that is a daily thing, my friends, as believers we get to live as believers, you have eternal life. You know, eternal life, eternal living eternal life, eternal perspective. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Remember, Daddy is Abba, Father. That's a sense of family. We are family. I know some of you are like, oh, man, you know. (laughs) And I believe this sense of family that the Spirit's bringing out is increasingly important as members of our earthly families, even, seem to be accelerating away from Jesus. It's heartbreaking, but it's true. And so God comforts us this way. He says, I I know what's going on. I see what's going on. Your family is ingrained with the world and doesn't want any part of the truth. And then he says, but don't worry about it, because you're my family now. And those family ties that are on earth, they're not going to matter in heaven. For some of you, this is a very welcomed reality, needed even. For you have been separated from portions of your earthly families due to strain, the strain of you being in Christ and they being of the world. And it's not always fun. But here's what the Spirit has to say up here on the board: Do not despair. Jesus understood firsthand what alienation from earthly families was, in communities was like. John 7, 5, uh, Mark 6, 4. He warned his disciples of such things for themselves also. Matthew 10, 35-37. Go to John 7, 5. John 7, verse 5. Jesus understood. Remember, he became a man. He had an earthly family. He had an earthly community. He grew in wisdom and knowledge and stature. He learned. Life taught him lessons. Jesus understood. John 7, 5. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Oh, man, seriously? Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him? Not right away. How about Mark 6, 4? Go there, Mark 6, verse 4. Can you imagine being the Messiah and your family members are like, nah. <laughs> we worry about Uncle Jimmy not paying attention to us who so are trying to evangelize. Here's the God man and his brothers and sisters. Like, nah, no, nah. His family members, nah, no." Nah. Mark 6, 4. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. Yeah. Do not despair. Go to Matthew 10.35. Jesus understands. Matthew 10.35. This one's tough. But He's telling you in the context of an eternal family that you've been adopted into. Matthew 10, 35. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Hmm. That's a tough pill to swallow. Not because Jesus is some instigator of uh, animosity, but that the truth, arrogance against the truth is what instigates animosity. Enmity, as the Bible would say. God has always been. God predates man. It's arrogance's problem. It's those in your earthly families that have a problem with God. It's not your fault. It's not God's fault. It's their fault. They will try to drag you down and say, this is your fault. You know, especially on like Christmas and Resurrection Sunday and Thanksgiving. You know, oh, you guys, you're just, uh, What do you think? You think you're better than me now, right? You're Mr. Christian, Mr. Bible-thumping Christian, right? They don't have a problem with you. They have a problem with God. That's the whole point. They have a problem with God. I get that because I'm a member of your family. <laughs> you guys are like, oh, don't remind me. I mean, I get it. We family members, but this is the point the Spirit's making. Such is the importance of our newfound family structure as believers. That's the importance of it. And as the Spirit pointed out this past week, as members of said family, we love each other the way Jesus loves us. That is the beauty of being in Christ. We've been given a new heart. We've been regenerated. We have the ability to love like Jesus loved. Not perfectly, but unselfishly for maybe the first time in our whole lives. Maybe some of you are seeing this now, that you in your sanctification are now loving to live for others. We love each other the way God loves us. Go to 1 John 4, verse 1. 1 John 4, verse 1. This is what family does. We love each other. And who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? No one. That means you and I are inseparable for all of eternity. (laughs) Tam's like, I've had enough of you on earth. Thank you. First John four one, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God: every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. I don't know what that is. I'm be willing to bet that's nikao in the Greek. And have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this love, or in this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us. "...because He has given us of His Spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son Excuse me, to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him." By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from Him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Remember our lesson titles: Who will separate? Uh, who uh, lesson title is Who will separate us from the le- uh, from the love of God, or the love of Christ? The question has already been answered: Nobody nobody. And because of this very truth, as we just noted in the tremendously edifying detail of 1 John 4, we have been given the supernatural ability to love like Jesus himself. Maybe not with the same purity or magnitude, but the same wavelength, so to speak. What a tremendous blessing up here in the board. We love like the God-man. What we do as believers is the proof of or evidence of who and what we love. If we love the Lord, it is evidenced by the fact that we live for Him and His sheep. Sound familiar? That We just read that. That was John's the God the apostle of love, that was his whole point in 1 John 4. We love one another. That's the evidence of who we are in Christ Jesus. We abide in God's love. That's what family does. Right? We may not always get along. How do you think Jesus liked being here? Loving the way he did, and then and, and, and then the people that should have been subjected to him for all intents and purposes, rightfully so, killed him, mocked him on the way, spit on him, pulled out his beard, uh, hung him naked. Anyone? Complete humiliation. And then he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's love. But that's what family does, you see. Even in time, a family like this, you're all idiots. (laughs) Happy Sunday. I am too. I have to watch you guys. Slow motion car wrecks. Yeah, that was a good decision you made. How'd that work out for you? The guppy face, right? We love like the Godman. What we do as believers is the proof of it, or evidence of who and what we love. If we love the Lord, it is evidenced by the fact that we live for Him and His sheep. And I, I think I'm going to end with this. Um, there's a gentleman that's um, on in his age. We were talking about him this morning, uh, Rava uh, Z- uh, Zacharias. He's an Indian uh, evangelist, apologist, self-described. And uh, I heard him say this recently, and I think I'll just end with this. He said, the supreme ethic of God is love. The supreme ethic of... Just chew on that the rest of this weekend. The supreme ethic of God is love. Everyone who talks about what's morally, ethically appropriate, right, know, we spin it up with political correctness... Um, We try to uh, bound in society with morality. Um, I don't mean to carry on waxing poetic, so to speak, but it's true. The supreme ethic of God is love. Everything that we aspire to, every law, every commandment is love. You know what I'm saying? Everything that God wants in us is because of his desire for us to love him back. He made the way possible. Do you understand? This is about a relationship. We're not going to be talking like this in heaven per se. We're not going to have all these problems. He's just trying to reconcile us to him. That's why we love each other the way we do. That's why we lay down our lives for each other. Whatever spiritual gift you have. At least you don't have to be a bubbling fool. Some of you are like, yeah, all I got to do is clean the toilets. (laughs) Sometimes that's better. Depending on who's been in there. (laughs) (laughs) Scott. Scott. No shade. See how it goes? <laughs> Just chew on it. Seriously. every This whole thing, all this pain we go through, this suffering, this perseverance, this tribulation, it's because of love. And that's what gets us through. And that's what's going to get us through together. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together the fellowship and a love that you've Reserved for your own children. Thank you for allowing us to reciprocate it in whatever form factor is good for you. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for showing us mercy and grace along the way. We just ask, Father, that as we take the things that we've learned this morning, these wonderful reminders of truth, as we take them out to a world that's just decaying away. Accelerating away from the truth of your son. We just ask for opportunity to spread your love by means of spreading the gospel. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.